the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as we mentioned, we are just exactly one week away from the 57th Annual Bay Area Church Workers Convention, hosted once again this year at Redwood Chapel in Castor Valley. We'll be on hand live both Thursday and Friday from 5 until 7 p.m. Get a chance to talk with a lot of the keynote speakers and certainly um, many of the folks conducting workshops there. An opportunity for folks of like mind that are in the trenches uh, to share best practices for people that are really not sure what their calling is, get a sense they want to do more but not sure how to quite to dig in, or, or maybe they've always had a vision for a certain type of ministry within their church but not sure how to execute, how to, how to move forward on it. This is a conference designed for you. You can get information, by the way, online at BassConvention.org. That's BassConvention.org. One of the things that churches are needing to really relearn, and that is the arena of communication. For the longest time, you could have the reader board out in front of the church, right? You see the signs out there. They put sometimes clever sayings and so forth. Have the reader board in front of the church. Uh, Maybe occasionally uh, pass some cards out around the neighborhood. And for the most part, rely upon members of the church to invite other folks to come in. Um, And while that's wonderful and quaint, um, it leaves today in the 21st century uh, a major means of communication entirely out of the mix. So today, a church to be effective when it comes to communications means that it also has to have a functioning website, one that you can negotiate your way through. It needs to be plugged into all forms of digital media and social media as well, so that you see all of these platforms as additional ways in which you can communicate and get your message out. One guy that knows Uh, More about that than I do is Justin Dean. He is a church communications coach based out of Atlanta, served as the communications director for Morris Hill Church up in Seattle for many years. He also was the co-founder of That Church Conference, a growing community of church practitioners dedicated to helping church communicate well and reach more people digitally. His latest book, PR Matters, A Survival Guide for Church Communicators, is a bestseller on Amazon.com. And Justin, great to have you on the show. Hey, Craig. Thanks so much for having me. This is a topic that frightens people to the core. Uh, Now, I I would hope here in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, the home of Silicon Valley, uh, we invented a lot of this stuff, (laughs) that more churches would understand it. But I would bet no matter where you travel, even here in the Bay Area, you find a good percentage of churches that are just terrified by even mentioning the word social media. Why, from your perspective, is it a mistake to leave that form, that means, that arena, digital communications, out of the broader um, arena of communications for what a church does in impacting its local community? 
it, it's a huge mistake, Craig, because uh, honestly, the opportunity is is just far too great there. So, you know, we we always say on social media, you have a, a way bigger opportunity to reach people, engage with your community on a very intimate level. Uh, the, the opportunity there is way bigger than any pulpit at the biggest church. Uh, you know, church, you're there for an, an hour on Sunday. It's very high level. You're hearing a message. You might talk to people in the hallways and you're meeting your friends and maybe you're plugged into a community group throughout the week or something like that. But honestly, the opportunity on social media is far greater than that because we're on it all the time. Everybody's on Facebook. You got Twitter, you got Instagram, everybody's sharing uh, everything about their lives from what they're eating to what they're struggling with to, you know, everything. And it's a great opportunity for the church, for pastors, uh, to really engage with people, get to know them, and build relationships and community and disciples throughout the week from Sunday to Sunday. And at the end of the day, it, it, you're really leaving a lot of goodies on the table, so to speak, in, in terms of the ability to have an effective outreach if you're not taking this into consideration. Because let's face it, you, you can only oftentimes reach so many people within your own immediate sphere of influence. You can only pass out so many postcards within the church neighborhood, but almost everybody is connected via a mobile device or a laptop or a computer at home at work. And the reach that we've seen, let's just talk about the impact of Facebook alone uh, in order to connect people, has been absolutely astonishing. I don't know that we will ever fully understand the totality of the impact impact of social media. And so why not harness it? I mean, I know that there are fear factors out there, just like a hundred years ago when this newfangled thing called radio came along, a lot of churches were afraid of it, thought, no, we, we can't see ourselves using it. And yet years later, it became one of the, 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 the most effective tools uh, for its time when it came to outreach, especially since no limits, no borders. Uh, we don't have to worry about not having enough space inside the church because there are no limitations. We'll go all the way back to, to Gutenberg and the printing press. I mean, they were trying to, you know, spread the message and go and, and preaching from one town to the next. And then uh, the printing press uh, came about, and they were able to turn those letters into uh, the Bible and distribute that. And now it's even to this day the most widely distributed uh, and read book out there. And, you know, now here we are 500 years later, and we have this wonderful thing called the Internet and social media and these smartphones in our hands, and the church is not using it. They're not jumping on it like they were uh, with the printing press. And I think that that's, I, I understand that they're scared. They, they don't understand it. They've been doing things for, uh, you know, the same way for a very long time. And all of this is very complicated and overwhelming. Churches are understaffed, they're under resourced, and things like that. But honestly, it, it comes down to. Uh, the, the opportunity is, is far too great to leave it. You know, Jesus told us to go uh, and make disciples, and churches these days are more like they're saying, come to us. You know, we've got this great experience on Sunday, you need to come to us, when really social media gives us the opportunity to go to them, not just in your local community, but worldwide, too, through, through your Facebook posts, through Facebook ads. You can target people in every country uh, in the world, and we see churches spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on mission trips, which are great. I just got back from Uganda. Nothing wrong with those, but we're spending so much money on that. With $100, I could target your church online message to, uh, you know, any country 
uh, or any part of Africa, if you, if you wanted to get specific and target that area with your message. Uh, and churches just aren't embracing that type of technology to get their message out there like that. And a lot of that, of course, is the fear factor. A lot of it is a sense of uh, lack of resources. They don't know that they have the people with the experience or qualifications to engage in this, or they're concerned that it's going to cost a lot of money. In a nanosecond, dispel that myth, if you would, that it's just too expensive or too complex to pull it off. Well, here's here's one practical example. Uh, churches spend tons of money on direct mail. You're sending out these postcards. You know, Easter's coming up. Most churches will put up billboards and they'll send out uh, a few postcards within five miles of the church inviting people to Easter. Get them in my uh, neighborhood all the time. The yep. Yeah, they cost thousands of dollars. you got to do three or four of them for, to be, for them to be effective. And it's just, it's not all that effective. Take that, you know, say you spend $5,000 on, on direct mail postcards. You can actually spend say $100 or $500 in Facebook ads, target people specifically uh, to five miles around your church. You can even target like new movers. You could do a new mover campaign to say, hey, you've moved into the neighborhood. We'd love to have you join us this Sunday. Or, hey, we'd love to get to know you better, like our Facebook page. Uh, The cost difference there is crazy dramatic, and you can reach far more people uh, for less through Facebook. And, And you don't have to even spend the money. If you're really good at uh, engaging with people and building those relationships through uh, your posts. It's all free. You, you've got to put in the time and, and resources uh, to do it. But I'm, if you look at your budget and your time and everything that, that people are spending money on, uh, I guarantee you there's places you can cut to, uh, to use social media better and have a far greater impact. And you might be delighted to find out, serendipitously so, that there are people inside of your own congregation that would love to have an opportunity to assist your church in in broadening this outreach. They just don't know that you need them. Now, you want to go a little deeper on this, and we probably, in this brief conversation tonight with Justin Dean, raised more questions than we've provided answers. That's why he's going to be speaking at the Bass Conference, and again, the annual event taking place again this year at Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley. Three days, March 7, 8, and 9. And of course, uh, the kickoff is that Thursday, and we will be there one week from tonight. Rain or shine. It won't be raining inside where we're at, so don't have to worry about that. Uh, Live from 5 until 7 p.m., get a chance to talk with a lot of the keynoters, many of the workshop presenters, folks like Justin Dean. So we invite you to be there. Get your church involved. More than 300 Bay Area churches typically participate in this. Thousands of folks come from all over the Bay Area to share best practices and have that iron-sharpening iron experience. So we invite you to come on out. Uh, Justin, we sure appreciate your time. We know that one of the most valuable uh, workshops that will be available to attendees will be the one that you will be teaching. So we invite for folks to uh, check things out. You'll find more information about uh, Justin's workshop by going to the Bass Convention website, bassconvention.org. That's bassconvention.org. Also, check out his latest book, PR Matters, a survival guide for church communicators, currently a bestseller on Amazon.com, so you can check it out there. And again, uh, check out Justin's presentation at the 57th Annual Bass Convention Conference taking place again in Castro Valley, March 7, 8, and 9. Details on the web at BassConvention.org. And our thanks to Justin Dean.
Like it or not, the workplace is changing. But does it work for you? The breakneck pace at which technology is impacting the workplace is happening faster and faster than ever before. When in years past, it sometimes took decades before real change came, now it happens seemingly overnight. For example, offices use the same basic typewriter to communicate from its inception in 1867 up until the 1980s. But the technology that began to replace the typewriter in the 80s bears little resemblance to the communication technology we use today. And as technology rapidly transforms the workplace, many of these changes will create dramatic shifts in the long-term future of work. For instance, reports estimate that between 45 to 55 percent of current jobs could eventually be lost to automation, with 7 percent of that job loss coming as soon as the year 2025. How can one hope to compete in this changing environment, let alone survive? You might not be getting that gold watch for working with the same company for 30 years like your grandfather did, but there are things you can learn that will not only help you survive in today's workplace, but thrive. Today, we begin the first in a series of job and career goal radio seminars designed to help you see the workplace and your role in it in a practical and hopefully successful and more rewarding light. We're joined in studio by career coach Dr. David Petrove. Dr. Petrove has been in the field of education for more than 35 years and did his doctrinal graduate study at the University of Arizona. He does lectures and seminars across the country and operates his own consulting firm, David Petrove Coaching. Dr. David, welcome. Thank you, Craig. Wow. Artificial intelligence, robotics, automation, computerization. The average worker has a lot of competition today that isn't just the guy or gal in the cubicle next door or workstation next door. How does one even hope to compete? Well, I think when we look at the word compete, we tend to think of it in terms of a win-lose situation. What we're going to be focusing on is how to create a win-win situation where everyone benefits. So that will be the focus of the programs that we do over the next few sessions. And in terms of who this is geared for, are we talking about people that are just getting started in the workplace, folks that are maybe mid-career looking for a change in direction, people that maybe have been in the working world for a lot of years, recognize they've got some ways to go before retirement, but are very frustrated with where they're at, either because they feel unfulfilled or they're fearful that the job that they have today won't exist soon. So the answer to all three of those questions is yes. This program or these sets of programs are designed to address any of those three situations that a person might be facing. Let's talk about the bigger picture of what employment overall looks like today. Well, in order to look at what employment looks like today, we need to revisit the past and see where we've come from. When you look back at history, and we need to think about where man began. At one point, we were basically hunters and gatherers. So that was based on the fact that we were omnivores. The hunters took care of the meat-eating part of us, and the gatherers took care of the plant-eating part of us. So what was happening was that the hunters would need to go out into the wild and search for food sources, while the gatherers tended to stay home in order to tend crops, which they couldn't leave for very long because, obviously, they wouldn't thrive. So we had two groups based upon two needs. And what has happened over this time is that, obviously, we've grown in terms of population. 
we can't all be hunters and gatherers anymore. So what we've done is to create a division of labor, and I'm sure many of our listeners have heard of this term. Division of labor is based on need. We always are looking at what needs are being addressed. Now, the core, for example, today is very much the way it was even in the very beginning in the sense that we're talking about survivability and sustainability, maybe in different forms to be sure. But at the end of the day, the goal behind work really hasn't changed overall in thousands of years. No, it really hasn't. It's been about survival. And if you were to ask people, why do you work? Pretty much the number one reason is to make money in order to cover my expenses. Food, shelter. Exactly. And food, clothing, and shelter have not changed, nor are they likely to change in the next thousands of years. Although, fortunately, we don't have to wear loincloths anymore. No. (laughs) Thank goodness for that. But I think that if you look at how things have changed and you use the example of, let's say, the beaver, the dam that the beaver builds today is probably no different than the one that he or she built hundreds of thousands of years ago. Look at man. Man and where he originally lived, which moved from outdoors to indoors to caves for protection, for shelter. We hardly live in caves today, and the ones that we do live are high-tech. We've changed significantly. Why? Human beings are problem solvers. We developed a whole part of our brain that addresses this. Part of being problem solvers is innovation. So we look at what is going on around us. What are the experiences that we're having? And what do we need to do to address any changes that take place? For instance, when we talked about the early hunters and gatherers, they lived in small enclaves. But as their population grew, that no longer met their needs. So what happened? We began to develop cities. And the cities had to accommodate more and more people until we reached the time of Rome when it became the first city to have a population exceeding a million people. So this approach at problem solving really hasn't changed. All we're essentially saying is that the problems that we're addressing today are different from those of years ago. I mean, for example, prior to the invention of the internal combustion engine or the wheel in a form of transportation, how do we get from point A to point B much easier? That problem has been solved, so now we're moving on to different problems. And in some respects, I think looking at these changes in the workplace from a standpoint of simply addressing different kinds of problems can give a person a bit more sense of comfort in knowing that in that regard, things really haven't changed much at all. No, they haven't. And so the good news, folks, is there will always be needs. The challenge will be how do we meet them? What do we do to problem solve? What do we do to innovate? in order to address what's happening in the world today based upon, as best as we can predict, the future will hold for us. And I think that's one of the big challenges in even having this kind of a dialogue, Craig. What is shared with the listeners will not be based upon my having a crystal ball in front of me to say that, okay, everyone, in order to be successful, you all need to be applying for this specific type of job. We all know that things can change on a moment's notice. Things can change within the environment. Things can change within the economy. So many different variables affect the type of work that we do. We could have a pandemic disease that 
eradicates a large portion of the world's population, just like they did with the Black Death. And then what would that mean for work and populations? So again, it's our best guess as to where we are at this point. Sounds like one of the most important skills then for success in life, in one's chosen career, and in the future is the ability to have or develop that skill to be forward thinking. Clearly, if you're somebody who was thinking about laying down some metal tracks upon which a device could sit with big wheels and then could be compelled by its own, maybe by steam, Great thinking, but somebody already invented the train. So what problems, what needs are going to lie before us in the future, and how can we hone that skill to be forward thinking so that we are prepared to be in the workplace that helps solve the problems of the 21st century? Today in studios, we're talking about the changing face of the workplace. Dr. David Petrove is in studio with us. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of the conversation right after this. You're listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist, Dr. David Petrove. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program, or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrove, please visit his website at davidpetrovecoaching.com. That's davidpetrovecoaching.com or call 650-400-7461. That's 650-400-7461. And now back to this special presentation, Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World. We're in studio today with Dr. David Petrove. We're talking about the future of work. And as we continue our conversation, we mentioned before the break about this notion that Mankind, we've long been problem solvers. The kinds of problems that we need to solve, of course, has evolved and changed down through the years. And the skill or the ability to sort of predict what new problems we'll be facing and how to resolve them really becomes at the core, then, the future of work. So in looking at this, Craig, I think the best way to predict the future is to look at the past. Remember, we were talking about basic needs. There are basic needs that will need to be addressed the way they will be addressed will be different based upon the technology we have in place today. We will still need to provide food, and that's a challenge. We'll need to provide housing. Uh, you take a look at just what's happening in the Bay Area with the housing boom. So we'll need to have houses. We will need to have clothing for people. So we will still need to be able to somehow manufacture clothing. We will need to have the machines that create these products. We'll also need to have ways of addressing the fact that we have aging populations. So healthcare, also medicine. All of these have been around forever. The way that they are showing up today will be different. So the basic fundamentals of food, shelter, communications, transportation, medical care, clothing, needs that mankind has had since day number one, we will continue to have those needs in the future. The question is how we address those needs, what kind of advancements come along in order to improve either the delivery of those needs, the efficiency of how we meet those needs, or maybe even the, the cost or expense. And I think as we look at this, we will be 
looking at the role of technology. What people have to remember is technology is simply a tool. Now, how that will look 50 years from now, we really don't have any idea of what that would be today because as you were talking about the evolution of the typewriter and where we've come since the 80s in just a very short time, over 100 years versus about 30 years, probably 10 years from now, people will look at our current computer system and say, do you believe people actually use something that antiquated? <laughs> I suppose that maybe the challenge in looking forward and being able to develop that forward thinking mentality is to get over the fear of the unknown. I mean, for example, in the early days, we used a real basic element, fire, in order to cook and stay warm. And along about the point at which electricity was developed, that then eventually took over, not only providing light, mm-hmm. but providing warmth and cooking, there was probably some fear and trepidation. They could see sparks coming out of two wires and say, my goodness, I don't want that in my household. That looks dangerous. I'm afraid of that. Perhaps as we look back, as you're suggesting, we could see that today none of us could imagine a household without electricity. And yet 100 years ago, the approach might have been very different that many people, as it was just coming into the homes, looked at it with a sense of fear and trepidation. So I guess getting over the fear of the future is one of the big challenges here. It's fear that will hold us back. What we really need to do is to learn how to embrace the future. Usually our fears of the unknown are just about that, the unknown. So hopefully the programs that we are going to present in this series will provide people with that type of information upon which they can make some informed decisions. All right. Toward that end, let's let's think about the big picture here. We know that information and knowledge is power. It leads us to the question of education. One of the things that we know is that our current population is about 326 million people. And right now, 154 million of those people are employed somewhere in the United States and 125 million of those are full-time positions. There is an upward trend in areas, as I was talking about, construction and food service. We need to eat. So again, these are based upon basic needs, the need for housing, the need for food, healthcare, manufacturing, and specifically in fabricated metal products, machinery, and then computer and electronics. That's the good news. The not-so-good news is that about one and a half million people in this country have been looking for work in excess of 27 weeks. Their jobs were outsourced. Something happened for them. The good news is there are a lot of people out there working. The other side of this that people need to think about is a number of the jobs that are being created are people who have an entrepreneurial mindset. So especially in the Bay Area, the number of startups, if you think it and if there's a need for it, many people will take that into fruition and create a product or a service based on that. How about the education in this country? What we know about education today, about 88% of the people over 25 have at least a high school diploma or a GED compared to only 85% in 2003. The good news is we're becoming a more educated country. 33% of our people hold at least a bachelor's degree or higher. That was compared to 25% in 2003, more college-educated people. 12% of these individuals report having a master's or a doctorate. We have most people with 
a basic education at the bottom of the pyramid. High school. Sure. Mm-hmm. And in, in many cases, as we're going to talk about in the next few minutes, not even high school. And all the way up to people like myself with a doctorate, believe it or not, men and women hold bachelor's degrees at about the same level. That's a plus for females. Education is now available to a lot more of them. Think about what that was like at the turn of the 20th century for women. Oh, yeah, just a handful. Just a handful. So a greater sense of parity then between the sexes when it comes to higher education. Yes, and of course, women today are self-sustaining in their careers. More than half of Asian Americans age 25 and over have at least a bachelor's degree. Native adults are more likely to have a high school education or higher, but they're no more likely than foreign-born adults to hold an advanced degree. Adults without a disability are more likely to have a bachelor's degree or higher than adults with a disability. Males are more highly represented in the higher-paying and more prestigious STEM fields, and STEM is science, technology, engineering, and math. We're encouraging more and more women to go into these fields. It's interesting that females tend to score higher in reading and writing skills than males, and that hasn't changed over the years. Women, they often say, communicate better than men do. So (laughs) the ladies listening in the audience would say, yeah, I get that. Yes, yes. (laughs) Younger people age 25 to 29 tend to have hires of level of education than the general population over 25. So our younger people are staying in school and pursuing degrees more so than in the past. Why? If we look at the type of work that people are performing, they will require those higher level thinking skills. So less in the direction of, say, traditional trade schools where you might go to learn a manual labor skill such as Mm -hmm. automotive maintenance or plumbing. Not that we don't need those skills today, but clearly the curve in terms of the trend of where the job opportunities are going is toward higher tech, therefore requiring higher degrees of education. So one way to look at that is if you're going to pursue any type of an occupation that requires that level of learning, obviously college is a place to do it, but at the same time, one of the things that we can't outsource, and it's something that people really need to listen to, can you outsource your plumbing? Can you outsource electrical work that needs to be done in your home? In other words, is that position going to be taken by someone who lives in another country. Not likely. Yeah, if you've seen my plumbing skills, you know I always outsource them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I just outsource them to somebody here who has that skill. And, and so we really want to encourage people, if they have those skill sets if the, and mindsets, that they are good at doing that type of work, pursue it. So as part of the message here for people that say, you know, I I appreciate the trend of where things are headed from a technological standpoint, but at the end of the day, I'm really somebody who feels more comfortable at home with my hands. I like to get in there and work with wood or deal with the challenge of correcting an electrical problem or plumbing. Again, areas that will always be an ongoing need here and an opportunity then for somebody to learn a trade that isn't necessarily in technology, though you might use technology in that trade, but that still caters to the individual that says, I work better with my hands than I do necessarily with a a slide rule or a uh, drafting table. Right. And I think that that, again, is a very, very important thing to look at. 
if you have talents in this area, by all means pursue them. These jobs are not going to disappear. If you look at some of the other ones that will go away, things like secretary, that's going away. They're talking about postal employees going away. Those can be automated. For right now, someone coming in to do repairs that involve problem solving, it's not likely even that machines right now will take that over. Let's pause on that point. We'll come back to more of the conversation today, looking at the world of work and its future. Dr. David Petrove with us today in studio. A brief timeout, back with more right after this. You're listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist, Dr. David Petrove. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program, or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrove, please visit his website at davidpetrovecoaching.com. That's davidpetrovecoaching.com or call 650-400-7461. That's 650-400-7461. And now back to this special presentation, Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World. David, as we pick up where we left off, um, looking certainly at what the minimums are in terms of sustainability, what one needs to earn. So here is an example of a city that, as you point out, could have gone either way, could have continued in its decline to virtually disappearing off the map, like a Detroit or a Flint, Michigan, or could be forward-thinking, continuing on that trajectory toward problem-solving and saying, what can we do now to reinvent ourselves in order to solve future generations' problems? Right. And in fact, the one gentleman compared himself to Silicon Valley and said, we're basically the East Coast version of Silicon Valley in terms of what we're doing here. And the other area was healthcare, and that is the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center complex, which has grown dramatically over the years. They now employ over 60,000 workers. They're the largest employer in the area. They took over the building in downtown Pittsburgh, which was formerly the U.S. Steel Building, which I remember being built in the 70s. So again, medicine and technology. With medicine, uh, I was part of the original group that was vaccinated with the Salk vaccine for polio because that was developed at the University of Pittsburgh. So they've got a number of universities that are heavy into research and development. And that seems to be a critical component. In Silicon Valley, we have Stanford as one of the feeder universities that has a very excellent reputation. Within Pittsburgh, it's... Carnegie Mellon and the University of Pittsburgh, plus a number of other universities that have evolved. So those seem to be key contributors. So when you look at some of these areas that are in decline and you look at those key contributors, are they present? And what could they add to the survival of that city? So that is pretty much where it's headed So if we talk about what it costs to live in these areas, 
Basically, we talk about the cost of living being the amount of money needed to sustain a certain standard of living. And that varies across the country. So we talk about a living wage. We talked about if you were making what's considered minimum wage for some of these middle-class positions, would you be able to survive in the Bay Area? Well, it would still be a struggle. If you had that same income in Mississippi, you might do quite well. So again, it's what it costs to live here. And basically, what we do is we look at where you live and how you decide whether or not you could afford it. So we know that at one end of the scale, we have Hawaii. Hawaii is one of the most expensive states to live in. So where is number two? California. If you were looking at the other end, where is it cheapest to live? It would be Mississippi. Okay? Just because of housing, because of medical, all of the contributors to what it takes to make your paycheck cover all of your expenses. So when we think of the future of work and our role in it, we have to be mindful of the not only direction that work is heading in, but also mindful of what is a acceptable standard wage or salary for a given position and what that looks like commensurate to the region of the country that it's in. In other words, the individual that maybe is a physician might not earn the same level in Mississippi than he or she does in California, but commensurate with the cost of living in Mississippi, lower income level, but also lower cost of living level. Right. So, for instance, there was a study that suggested that someone in San Jose would need almost 90000 a year to live versus 60000 in Houston. So there's quite a discrepancy in what it would take. So how do they figure this out? Well, they basically look at different indices, and one of them is the Consumer Price Index. And if you're at all familiar with this, imagine a grocery basket filled with a set of items. Let's say you were filling that basket up in 1982, and then you were filling it up in 2016. That same identical grocery basket, when the cashier ran them through the scanner, would cost you about $240 versus $100 in 1982. So we're seeing a significant increase in what it costs. So if that was the case, what would be important to do would be to say, okay, how is the, the cost of living raise that we're providing keeping up with that? And we know that it seems to be falling behind. And, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's really tailored based upon the location where you choose to live. And some people are making that decision in California and saying, you know, for what it costs for housing here, and we seem to have outpriced ourselves in terms of the housing market for an individual home, is another option if that is something that I want to live in another state or another part of the state 
where it's more affordable. Homes now that are were probably bought at $50,000 at one point are now selling for over a million just because the market will bear that. It's something that people need to look at. Does my current income support being able to pay that mortgage? That being said, if you look at the bundle of goods, similar to what was in our grocery basket, and we look at substituting, let's say, other aspects. So the median rent for an apartment in this country is now $1,478 a month. The, annu- the average annual electric bill, 1300 The average annual household food bill is about 7200 a year. Depending on where you live, that will either go up or down. Yeah, I'm saying I'm, I'm feeling very non-average right now. Yes. <laughs> As everyone else listening, shaking their head in agreement. This is just one aspect of many, of course, that we've touched on in today's introductory program to a new series on the future of work and you. And each week, Dr. David Petrove is going to be with us, walking us through what does it look like in terms of educational choices, career choices, satisfaction levels. How do you launch a new career? How do you change careers midstream or midlife? How do you get into that dual track or portfolio style career? How do you find not just a degree of economic and financial success, but just as important, that degree of personal success and satisfaction in what you do? Is your job simply a job and drudgery just to make it through 40 hours a week? Or is it something that you really exist for and love to do and walk away with tremendous sense of satisfaction? If you're somewhere in between those two places, or maybe you just like to hang it up because you've not yet found the right career, well, this series is going to be designed to answer all of your questions and, most importantly, increase your understanding and your skill set to find that ideal career for you. We're looking very much forward to this entire series. You're listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist Dr. David Petrove. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program, or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrove, please visit his website at davidpetrovecoaching.com. That's davidpetrovecoaching.com, or call 650-400-7461. That's 650-400-7461. No portion of this program may be transmitted by third parties in whole or in part without the express written consent of David W. Petrovay, DBA, David Petrovay Coaching. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.